I recently had the chance to chat to actor Bill Homewood via WhatsApp. Now, I'll be honest with you, that's a sentence I never thought I would say. Um, my first question was fairly straightforward. How did he get the job on the Renford rejects? I think my agent will have called me at home and said, you got an interview on Thursday or something. I remember going along for an interview, I think actually at the Spotlight offices in Leicester Square or just off Leicester Square. I think that's where I went for this one and popped into a room and chatted to a director and a writer, um, Stephen Baywall and Chris um, Wilson. And I think there might have been a third person in there. By the time I left the room, I remember thinking I'd got the part, which you don't, very often you're wrong when you think you've got a part. But I think we were more or less by the end of the conversation talking about how we were going to portray Stoker. Um, so I, I kind of knew. That's as much as I can remember. I remember immediately they showed me a bit of script, immediately um, coming up with Stoker as I did him, which was an amalgamation of several gym teachers that I'd had at school. I was born in 1946, which is 73 years ago, and um, therefore, at school, all my gym teachers, well, all my teachers pretty much, my male teachers anyway, had been in the military, in the army, and of course, gym teachers who'd been in the army were a, a special breed, a bit sergeant majorish, and a bit fierce, and I based Stoker on a sort of cross-section of gym teachers I'd had over the gym and games teachers I'd had over the years. Even the walk I did, the uh, Stoker running along the touchline, I had a football teacher at uh, junior school who used to run along the touchline like that, picking up his knees, uh, encouraging us to pick up our knees when we ran. And uh, the whole tradition of never passing backwards, always passing forwards, always dubbing your boots before the match and uh, basing everything you do on the style of play that Sir Stanley Matthews was famous for in his day, all that stuff. Because the, the writer Chris Wilson trusted me with, um, with this, what I would get from uh, the office was a, a script in which my part was, my replies and things were just like a line or two. And then I developed them in the style of Stoker, uh, or, you know, a list of, of negatives. He, he never said, that's true. He would always say, that I not never not true, and, uh, and such like. So I, would, I had a, a, a little bet on with the writer each week that I could add another negative to one of my sentences. And the maximum I got up to was 14 negatives cancelling each other out in one sentence. I think that was the longest ever. And I think that was an episode on a beach in Sardinia. <laughs> anyway, uh, my memories of the show were all like that. It was a hilarious time. The part was hilarious and, uh, and the um, locations were fun and we all got on very well. It was a good laugh. Yes, well, it always looks like you're having such great fun your character was actually quite intense because sometimes you're looking people straight in the eye and, and things like that. Do you think your your training uh, kind of helped you with that? <laughs> My training, well, mm, ah, I tell you, if you've done a lot of theatre work and then you do screen work, 
and I had done a lot of screen work by then, um, so I knew this already, but you do learn not to make big wide arm gestures because you're going to force your cameraman uh, to step back and to pull out and you're not going to get the close-ups. So you learn to be intense and small um, physically, but to put that intensity into your face. And I saw Stoker as a furious man. Uh, he was furious with the girliness of football, the very idea of girls playing football, uh, the very idea of passing backwards, the very idea of fancy, flashy trainer-type football boots and so on and so on. All this enraged him. And so he was more or less constantly in a, <laughs> in a rage. And um, he and um, Terry... His, uh, his thuggish son uh, were um, actually a, a, a complicated, vengeful and angry couple of people. They did one episode where I think somebody came round to the house, uh, Stoker's house, and I, if I remember right, I've only just remembered this, Jamie, I think they put an apron on me, and when I came to the door, I was evidently cooking. I think it was a, a stroke of genius by the writer. Uh, that was a side of Stoker that was never developed beyond that one scene, but um, it was very good fun. I think that's what was great about that show, is certainly early on, um, for the main characters, there were kind of two worlds, weren't there? There was sort of being inside that cafe and also being on the football field, and they did a very good job of, of splitting those two worlds up and making them collide occasionally. Yeah, and actually while we're being kind of intellectual about it, they, they introduced a third world too, which was the fantasy world in which occasionally um, we travel back through time. For instance, when Stoker became Basilus Stokerus or something, Emperor of Rome, and that was the episode in which uh, Stoker was thrown by a giant catapult which his son had accidentally pulled the lever to operate when Stoker was sitting in it. And in fact, I was very badly injured shooting that scene because they mistakenly operated the catapult when I was sitting in it. Um, it's a long story, but that's exactly what happened. And I was thrown through the air. I was on stage in London in Phantom of the Opera at the same time, and I was filming in Isha, and I was severely injured. I had um, uh, a fractured skull, a damage to my spine, and so on. It was an awful accident. I was thrown quite a long way and quite high up, and landed headfirst on a, a tree that had been laid on its side. Uh, and I should really remember the episode for that but in fact it was one of the funniest things i've ever filmed and i even that episode which in which i required hospital help afterwards and and a long period of rehabilitation actually uh, even that episode i remember and and it makes me laugh to think of it the idea was um the uh, the, the writer went off into a complete flight of fantasy and um, suddenly uh, the history of how football developed and all of that uh, led them to, to Rome. Another time, uh, we were cowboys, and Stoker was uh, Il Santoro, and it was a sort of homage stroke send-up of The Magnificent Seven. I think that probably is the best episode of all. But, but again, uh, the license to be very, very silly uh, was never very far away, and, uh, uh, and I think probably as the episodes went on, 
uh, we all got madder and madder. I, I really, it was a very funny show, wasn't it? I can agree. And certainly at the beginning, even though it wasn't quite as overt as that, there were still little fantasy elements in there, weren't there? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I mean, well, establishing my character, I think in the very first or second episode, I've forgotten the name, uh, Bruno Di Gradi, Bruno Di Gradi, uh, uh, the, the, who had pretensions as an Italian footballer, said, uh, but Signor uh, football is an art or something like that. Yeah. And I and Stoker went mad. I still remember the line, an art, an art. Football, my son, is not an art. It is a man's game. And uh, honestly... I would deliver that line and lines like that entirely seriously, straight into the face of the other protagonist. But believe me, after, as soon as they shouted cut, we were all on the floor rolling about. It's extremely funny and it must be quite difficult for the other actors when you're being so deadpan to keep a straight face. <laughs> but the director uh, once said to me when we were actually filming the episode in Sardinia, which was the Wild Wild Renford, I think the episode was called. When we were filming that episode, the director said to me one day, you really don't care what you look like, do you? It's true, Jamie. There's no room for vanity when you're doing comedy. Stoker was ridiculous, and I liked playing him. And I liked playing him one-dimensional, too. I didn't want to make out that deep down inside he was a softy or a nice man or, or you know, that he collected stamps or something. I was very happy to play him as a one-dimensionally nasty man, uh, uh, rather similar to several of my sports and gym teachers that I'd encountered in my childhood. It comes across extremely well. Well, thank you. My wife's an actress, Estelle Kohler, and uh, Estelle was um, a leading lady at the RSC for well over 40 years, and uh, we were comparing notes uh, uh, quite recently, actually, for a, a little joint interview we did for something, uh, we both realized that we had, each of us had made entire careers out of playing villains. Even in Shakespeare, I played the baddies. I once played um, Orsino in Twelfth Night, who's essentially a goodie, although he's a bit of a sop. And it was my worst ever performance. Yes, Patrick Stewart was directing that. And Patrick one day said, you play the guitar, don't you, Bill? And I said, yes. He said, why don't you play the guitar in the part then? It would help you, give you something to do with your hands. I was so bad at playing a nice man, an ordinary person. I did play a few later on. I got better at it as time went by. But I always went straight to the heart of villains and never had any problems at all, either in rehearsal or on stage or on screen. Referring back to the the rejects, your on screen relationship with um, with Tom Weller, who played your your son, you had such a great rapport, didn't you? Yes. Oh, yeah. I got Tom and I got on very well. He's quite a methody actor, uh, or was then, and I'm not at all a methody sort of actor. He he tends to come in from underneath, and I tend to come in from above. And my experience throughout my career has been that those two sorts of actors work brilliantly together. I find it easier in a way to work with method actors than I do to work with other actors who aren't so methody like me. And Tom and I really got on very well. He was uh, quietly thuggish and I was noisily thuggish. And, uh, and I think also he did a very clever thing, which was, I think from time to time, a sort of shame <laughs> a sort of shame crossed uh, Terry's face. <laughs> I used to see it from time to time. 
was one of the ingredients that used to make me laugh when I watched the episodes. Yeah, I did. I got on very well with Tom. We're in touch now, thanks to Twitter, actually, because of the Twitter interest, the ongoing Twitter interest in the Renford Rejects. It could do with, with being revived, couldn't it? People love it when they see it to this day. Uh, actually, I've been lucky. Uh, I, uh, I won't uh, dwell on this because I know we're talking about the Rejects, but in the 80s, I was on the Adventure Game uh, as a regular, but also before that, I was on Multicolored Swap Shop and Saturday Superstore as an occasional uh, studio guest. And all of those are still uh, regarded as television cream, children's television cream, I mean, classic TV. Um, and, uh, and although I did lots of other things, guesting on Rainbow and, and uh, many other shows, oh, I did a thing called So You Want to Be Top for BBC Children as well with Gary Wilmot. I did lots, but the ones that are remembered of them, the most recent is Renford Reject, which I think has almost achieved cult status now, hasn't it? It really was very, very good telly, wasn't it? Oh, extremely, yes. And, and um, I was an avid watcher when I was younger and you sort of fall out of it and then you discover it again. It, it's kind of that thing people keep rediscovering. Certainly on Twitter, the amount of love on there for the show is, ama is amazing, isn't it? I know. I know. With, with anything, almost anything to do with rejects, I do, I, I do in, as you know, in my Stoker character, simply because the joke goes on, I still, it still makes me laugh. And I've quite enjoyed people who know me as a poet or as a classical actor. I've quite enjoyed that moment when they discover me on Twitter and realize I was Stoker. Obviously, they immediately follow, and then I kind of lead them on a bit with, with a bit of Stoker going on about Stanley Matthews or, or whatever. I think it's extraordinary that 22 years later, I still am as amused by it as I was when I did it. The combination of writing, directing, casting, all made into a magical formula, really. I was a, a little bit intimidated um, beforehand, uh, thinking, I'm going to interview this guy. You know, this is Basil Stoker. To, to me, I've, I was slightly younger than the characters in, um, in that show. To me, you know, you were terrifying. <laughs> Did you think I was going to say, pull your socks up, lad? Exactly. One thing I wanted to, to kind of draw upon was the guest stars. Do you have any memories of the guest stars that you worked with on The Rejects? Um, I do. Um, and now you've got me struggling to remember names. Um, there was that fantastic, very high camp art critic... Oh, what was Brian Sewell uh, from the Evening Standard, a completely brilliant, very waspish, completely brilliant journalist and immensely knowledgeable uh, about uh, the arts and so on, and whom one knew as a sort of po-faced uh, television arts pundit. And also he had been through a relationship uh, indirectly involved in the blunt uh, a spy scandal, and so he was a he was a, a, a fascinating man. He's dead now, but anyway, who would have thought that he would come on to Renford Rejects and be as entertaining uh, as an actor, if you like, as he was? Complete surprise. And I know that the guys. I didn't have scenes with him, but I was there during his filming. I know the guys had a very big laugh with him. I think um, he needed 
uh, actually needed controlling almost um, because he was prepared to do just about anything. And then there was the World Cup team. Of course, the 66 team uh, were there. I did uh, film with them. I've got no particular memories except it was um, a, a day or two because I wasn't playing. I was just yelling from the touchline. Um, but it was a, a day or two of, of quite nice... Uh, 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 quite nice, enjoyable filming. Uh, Martin Keogh uh, was the one I spent most time talking to of all those guys, uh, a great fullback, of course. And I think he kind of got the joke, too. I think uh, he was, um, he, he kind of got Stoker. As a matter of fact, I think it worked out that the boys worked much more with the celebrities than Stoker. Um, Stoker, generally speaking, if Stoker was, a, was in an episode, Nine times out of ten, the episode was about Stoker. And because I, I wasn't in all the episodes, out of every 12, I would have been in eight or nine, I think. Something like that, maybe nine. So there were whole episodes without me. And several of those featured um, celebrities. When there were my episodes, there, there were fewer of those sort of invited stars. Just, just a few times it happened. There was that um, guy, Rhino who was um, one of the world's strongest men people, I think. And I remember him rocking up in, a, in some sort of massive four-wheel drive thing uh, with a number plate, which I think it was RH1NO or something. And actually, he was good fun. There was a bloke who did animatronics who was very famous for doing playing a gorilla in some of those big gorilla films in Hollywood. And we did an episode with him in which I was in a cage with him, but I was convulsed with laughter nearly all the time uh, uh, with him, I remember. I can't remember his name. He was quite brilliant. Yeah, so that was good fun. Yeah, that's another... You're, you're right, actually, Jamie, that's another thing that marked the show out. It was extraordinarily flexible, if you think about it, uh, that the show could move from being a vehicle for celebrities being very silly to mock history, to modern football ethics, to, you know, uh, to training and so on. A very, very interesting show. And then there was the Central Girl. Uh, they had, while well, I was on the show, well, I was always on the show, but they had three different lead girls in the, in the team. The wonderful Lucy Punch, of course, went on to great things. Holly Davidson is a very well-known trainer now. Um, I can't remember the name of the, the other girl. She was very good too. It, it, it was a good gang of actors. Yes, it was. And um, just to pick up on something that you said earlier about uh, Stoker, the fact that when you were in an episode, it was most likely about you or something to do with you. Before the interview, I thought I'll, I'll brush up on a couple of episodes just kind of to see very you-centric episodes and thought well there's there was an episode where um you worked quite extensively with martin delaney basically you're worried about him you decide to get him onto the razors team and he has to play against the rejects he then kind of fakes being bad and you end up losing the game and there's a very interesting scene where you're trying to talk him into joining you he won't join you and you're practically in his face. I don't know whether you remember this at all, but, uh, you know, the intensity of that moment and the way that they use the music to kind of make it even more intense. 
um, was extremely memorable. Well, you're describing something I can imagine um, very well, um, but I, I don't remember that moment. But I can tell you this, that Martin, like me, always on his lines, always on his place, always ready, the consummate professional. So all of my work with Martin was a pleasure. I, I quite often had passing encounters with his character, of course. I, there was an episode when uh, we had confrontation. Uh, I, I can tell you, I don't know what the camera was on at that moment, but I can tell you uh, it, when it went on to him, he would have been as in my face as I was in his. Uh, he was uh, a jolly good to work with. Of course, he's a, a busy actor these days, uh, and that was a very good start for him, that show, I know. Mm. Yeah, I'm sorry that I don't remember that specific uh, that specific moment. Damn, it's 22 years ago. I think it's I think it's amazing what talking to you has brought back, as a matter of fact, and it just shows what fun the show was. That uh, it's so indelibly in my mind still. I don't blame you for not remembering everything because um, every there was like four seasons. Uh, or four series, as we used to say, before the world got Americanized, and uh, there, there were thirteen episodes or so in each series. That's a lot of episodes. It is, and and as I did eight or nine in each series, um, that's a lot of episodes too. So they they tend to go into a jumble. But also, there's the fact that since that, I've been on dozens and dozens of television shows on location and in studio and so on. They do tend to jumble up in your mind a little bit. And um, that was twenty two years ago, but I think I probably remember more about rejects than I do about most work that I've ever done. To bring us quite nicely to a conclusion, um, what have you been doing quite recently? Well, I live in the south of France. I rather cut my own throat with regard to the London theatre, but I'd been in when we moved to France early uh, in the in the twenties. The 2000s. Yeah. Uh, when we moved full, full time here, I kind of severed my relationship with the London stage scene. I'd been on and off in the West End for years by then, and I didn't mind that because I was doing more and more television. So since we've moved here, I've uh, gone back to England to do a few things, but I do a lot of writing. And I publish, I, I write as a poet. I've published four collections. Uh, I think it is, uh, since I moved to France. And I published them uh, first on Facebook. I've got um, a page, Bill Homewood's Poem a Week by Me for You, or one word. And on that uh, page, I publish each new poem. And when I get to enough to put into a collection, then they get published in collections, uh, which is about once a year, once every couple of years, that sort of thing. So I'm very busy with that. I've just finished recording um, a, a great British classic, Le Motte d'Arthur, uh, by Mallory for Naxos Audiobooks. And in fact, in the last few years, Jamie, I've been recording, in fact, over the last 20 years, I've been recording for uh, Naxos audiobooks, uh, great British and French classics. But in the last few years, since I've been solely in France, um, I seem to have specialized in great French classics in translation because they obviously need an actor who can slip in and out of the lingo because of uh, all the 
French names, proper names, and so on in the great books by Hugo and Duma, things like uh, Les Miserables and the, and, and the Hunchback of Notre Dame and uh, the, the Count of Monte Cristo and so on, which I've recorded. Um, I have done British classics as well in recent times. Um, but anyway, I've just finished this mammoth book, The Death of King Arthur, Le Mort d'Arthur, which is um, the sort of original, well, certainly the original assembly of the legends of King Arthur, which led to all the Knights of the Round Table stuff, movies, television series, other books, and so on, uh, in the centuries since. And I had to record it in the original translation, which is in... Uh, Middle English. So there was quite a lot of research involved in that one. And I literally finished that a uh, couple of weeks ago. And it's now with the sound editor and Naxos who are producing it. And I think it's going to come on the market in November. I've actually, I should make it clear, Jamie, I've got a recording studio here in France. And having spent many years in recording studios for BBC and various commercial enterprises in Britain before I moved here, I'm used to studio discipline and so on. And so Naxos entrust me with um, doing the recordings here. I have a recording studio set to the same standards as if I were in a studio in London. And I record the books here. And then thanks to the incredible um, modern technology, I can get my recordings to them via Dropbox or various other means we transfer or whatever. And they do the edit in London and hey presto, and, and the records are on the shelves. That and my poetry are the two ways uh, that I fill my time here. Before we end this, um, you don't have to answer this, but obviously, what do you think your character in The Rejects, what do you think Basil Stoker would be doing now? <laughs> it makes me laugh. What a good question. If he were 20 years older now, I think he would be sitting in his house in wherever he lives. I think when we filmed, he was in sort of northwest London somewhere. Um in his terraced house, and there would be a few cups on the wall. I think he would still be dubbing his <laughs> dubbing his boots. I bet you he'd be mixed up with the local scouts or something. And um, I think he'd be he'd probably be down the park uh, with a boys' football team of a Sunday morning, and uh, and so on. I expect he'd be very opinionated. I'm pretty sure that he would be pro pro Brexit. Um, and I don't know what he would make of of uh, COVID-19. He'd probably think we were all sissies for not going out and facing it. <laughs> Quite possibly, yeah. And I think he would be he would be entirely bald. <laughs> he was pretty bald then. Don't you think Stoker by now would have concocted his memoirs? Quite possibly, yeah. He might call it a man's game. Yeah. <laughs> actor bill homewood discussing his life in and out of the renford rejects